One of the rhythms of life when I was a youth pastor is that every summer we would go to summer camp. I think I counted it up uh, in the totality of my life. I think I've spent somewhere close to seven or eight months of my life at summer camp in total over the course of the time I've had here on earth. I love summer camp. Why are you talking about summer? It's going someplace. It's winter, I know, but we're talking about summer camp. Summer camp, you make friends. You make life-altering decisions that last forever. I've seen camp literally save people's lives, set addictions free, salvation, baptism, testimony after testimony. But for all of those good things, one thing that's usually true is that camp food is made by the devil himself. It's so bad, usually. It's usually so bad that it's known. It's a running joke. Elijah knows. There's a running joke that the the one thing to look forward to is potato triangles. If you start naming your food by shapes, you know you're already in a bad place, okay? So knowing that, knowing that Carlinville wouldn't know a good cup of coffee if it got in his face and did a TikTok dance, knowing that, I prepared one year for summer camp. Knowing that I needed the caffeine, needed the coffee, wanted good coffee, I went out and bought a uh, cold brew coffee container and brought it with me in my luggage to camp. So the very first morning I woke up, literally made my way to the dining hall, already fighting middle schoolers off of me. I'm like, please go away. You already need a shower, that kind of thing. And so I sit down and I pour myself a large cup of coffee out of this cold brew. So happy, so pleased with myself. About an hour later, I realized that I was starting to feel pretty jittery. I was feeling kind of like this, and I realized my tiredness had left. And I realized that I could feel my heart beating, which I don't think is probably a healthy thing. And all of these things are not ways I normally uh, react to caffeine. I was feeling good in another sense, okay? So later, I got back to the room. I checked the bottle. I was just reading through, and it's like, how much caffeine does this thing have? And I realized that I did not buy cold brew coffee. I bought cold brew coffee concentrate, (laughs) which is very different. And the direction said, one part coffee to four parts water. So that morning, I drank about four, five, or six cups of coffee in reality. There is power and potency in concentration. (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about how together the family of God is a potent and powerful community. One that is better when we are together. If you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. I'll be reading out of uh, the NLT today, New Living Translation. We've been in a series the last few weeks on Ephesians, and we've been taking our time, sometimes studying just two verses, sometimes studying five or six. Today marks the most verses that we will have studied so far. We're going to be covering Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through 3, verses 13 today, because it all deals with the same topic. So read along with me as I read this, verses 11. It says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders, You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. 
Last week, we had missionary Corey Bro with us in-house, and he said me something when he was giving his testimony that really got me thinking this week. Have you guys ever stopped to think about how the world thinks about Christianity? Have you ever thought about how our community thinks about this church or your neighbors, your unsaved neighbors and friends and acquaintances, how they view you and your faith? On the extreme and the negative side, it's often bad. They think we're a crazy cult. They look at us and they think we look at how we regularly attend service, give our money, teach on submission, leadership, roles, and gender. That we doubt modern day science, evolution. We believe in mystical superpowers unseen, uncontrollable, and to them unprovable. Some might think that we hate women, homosexuals, blacks, Chinese, Arabs, anybody that's not a white, Anglo-Saxon, blue-eyed, blonde male. To some, it's crazy that we give our time, our energy, our Facebook feed to something that makes no sense to them and is in contrast to their beliefs. Others look at us and look at the church, look at Christianity, and they see hypocrisy. They see people that preach love but act in hatred. The world's looking for all those news clippets of that mega pastor or that high celebrity figure that that private sin became public and they look at all that failing and that fallout and they say, ah, more proof that it's lies. But Corey said something very specifically last week that I think applies to many people, especially people that did not grow up in the faith. Especially if you were a first generation Christian If you've never had a a history or an inheritance of going to church, you don't have memories of this. Corey said this. He said last week, he said, I thought that church was just for church people. I thought that church was just for church people. I don't know the language. I remember inviting a neighbor once that was unsaved to church, and he said, I don't know what to wear. Man, you can, you can just wear this. Wear jeans and whatever. He said, I don't have dress clothes. You don't have to have dress clothes. I don't know how to talk. I don't know what to wear. I don't know what to show up. I feel judged walking in. I don't live like them. I don't look like them. I don't think this church thing is for me. I don't think I'm probably good enough for that. In all of these things I mentioned, there's an underlying thought process or motivation behind all of this, and it's this view or lens of the world. It is us versus them, whether it's the world versus the church or the church versus the world. And honestly, for many years, this wasn't far from the truth in the Old Testament. In establishing a following on earth, God used inclusive, exclusive language. In Genesis 17, 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between you, speaking of Abraham, and your offering after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Joshua 23 says, make sure you do not associate with the other people on the remaining land. Do not even mention the names of their gods, much less swear by them or serve them or worship them. Rather, cling tightly to the Lord your God as you have done till now. Perhaps this sounds harsh to us. It certainly doesn't feel like the the loving, inclusive language or thought process that we use now to our modern day sensibilities. But keep in mind that in the history of the Old Testament and the Bible, 
God in the beginning set up a perfect space with sinless, perfectly sinless people. But they betrayed him. And very quickly after that, we find out in Genesis 6 that the earth was filled. Filled means no room left with corruption and violence. So much so that it grieved an all-powerful creator God that he'd even considered making humanity. And so from there, God started again through the line of Noah, resetting earth and trying to create a people that were bent towards loving and knowing him. But instead, just a few chapters later, you find that they go back to their old things. We try to raise a tower and once again take control from God, find equality with God. Fast forward a little bit to Egypt. In Exodus 6-7, God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Again and again, Scripture uses this, this slavery to Egypt as this idea of us versus the world, of removing yourself from the, the, the authority of Egypt, the powers unseen that are pressing you and pushing you into slavery. So God chose a people. He chose a nation to be his own, but from our summer study with Abraham, we know that this was not his intention to just be inclusive. We knew that he was setting things up over time and time again, much like a domino, so they would all fall together and work out to what he was planned. He was working at all so that he eventually Abraham's lineage would bring a savior so that all people could say, Romans 10, 13, for anyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But the world wasn't really let in on this information. Those outside the faith, and honestly those within it, had this us versus them mentality. I mean, just look at the language that Paul has laced into these few verses. If you were not born a Jew with Jewish heritage, he describes you as an uncircumcised Gentile, outsider, living outside of Christ, excluded from citizenship, godless and hopeless. Exciting stuff. Realize that if you weren't born an ethnic Jew, this is you. You were on the outside. You were denied citizenship. You had, were godless and hopeless and on the outside. It's easy to distance ourselves from the radical. It's easy to distance ourselves from people that live with this us versus them mentality, but realize that we're only a few steps away from living that out. Realize that when you hear of the next crazy thing that they're trying to teach, to deconstruct in our education system, where the assemblies of faith, when we think it's us versus the woke school board, or us versus the woke leadership. These past few months, we've seen the ads and the beliefs of political leaders slamming each other, the way they throw the filth about each other online and trying to get us to vote a certain way. And we see our neighbors put signs in their yards, and we automatically know that we see the world in a very different way. And it can, the, the temptation is to say it's us versus them. I remember when I was a young and uh, younger in college, and I was passionate about my faith, uh, misguided in some ways. 
And there was, I had a friend that was a proclaimed atheist, but she was part of our friend group and very open-minded. She would come to Bible study and we'd have long conversations about God, but just didn't see where I was coming from. So I remember her inviting me to an atheist Facebook group online. And so I joined it, and obviously they're all there combined by one thing, that they don't believe in God or don't love God and can't understand that. So there's a lot of things that go on there that would be anti what I believe. And so me and my uh, um, misguided passion felt like I was the lone soldier in this group of unbelievers. And felt like it was up to me to push the truth and push the love I thought to these people and to respond to these comments. And one day I, I did that. And as you can imagine, it did not go very well for me. If you're one in a group that says atheist, you probably are not in the right place. And so I remember at one point that my friend actually came on and started defending me. She's like, hey, leave him alone. Don't think I'm, don't make him cry. And uh, she never invited me back to another group. I don't know why. But so long and in unhealth and without an accurate view of who God is, we approach our faith, wear it as a badge, and believe this mantra of it's us versus them. But we're not called to defend Jesus. What did Jesus say when his life was in danger? When an angry mob rose up to take him? He said, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by a sword. Don't you realize that I asked my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Instead of modeling an us-versus-them mentality, we instead see Christ is for them. And it changes everything. I'm not telling you to be quiet about your faith. I'm not telling you not to share or to not to stand for, against injustice, against sinful living or leadership. I'm not telling you to do any of that. But again and again, I see, we see the church persecuted, thrown in jail for sharing their faith. But it goes back to a prodigal son mentality. Are you sharing? Are you interacting with people? Because of love or out of religious, legalistic pride? Do you sit high and judge people? Or do you understand that people are, most people are just trying to figure out and get through life? Every person is frustrated and hurt. Every person is disappointed and dealing with anxiety and pain. And what may feel and what may be an assault on you and on your faith, you're not dealing with the person. You're dealing with the spirit behind them. It's not Egypt. It's the spirit of Egypt. Christ is for them. It's not us versus them. So we're going to pick up our writings a little bit more in verses 13. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the walls of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Christ himself brought us peace. 
I wonder if you can remember a time that you were on the outside, a time that you weren't allowed in. Have you ever had that time where you felt picked last to play in the game, unequivocally told by a sibling to go away and shut the door? Perhaps scrolling your Instagram or Facebook feed and you stumble across that lunch outing or that party that your friends are at and you wonder, where was my invitation? Did it get lost? If you know that feeling, you know that it's not good. And so many people look at the church and think, it's just for church people. I'm not a church person. I'm not allowed in. But I wonder if on the opposite end, you can remember a time that you were chosen or you were included. I wonder if you have that memory, and I wonder how it made you feel. I remember when I was 16 years old, I had a buddy that was two years older than me, and he started his freshman year at college. And me in my sophomore year, he invited me to come and spend the night, stay over a weekend with him. And I felt like the biggest, strongest, most included, most loved person because I was hanging out with college kids. It was the coolest thing I'd ever done in my whole life. So cool that I still have that memory of staying Thomas, Thomas Meehan's dorm, having to sleep on the floor on a cold cot, but it was cool because I was hanging out with college kids. There are people in our lives that are just looking to be included. But they think by the very things that we believe and we talk about that they are excluded from this kind of relationship. But this is what Paul is reminding the church. He says, you've not only been included, you have been chosen. Do you realize that every person that, say, that receives salvation here at this church, every person that's set free, every person that finds a home and a family here is a direct result of prayer? The church is praying for the lost to come in, to find a home, to find the peace of Christ. And that's what Paul's reminding the people in this letter. He's saying, no longer is it us versus them. It's always been Christ for them. He died. He died so that you could come in. His sacrifice, his deliberate choice to go to the cross, was to make an inclusive covenantal relationship with outsiders. And we're building a new thing so everyone can be included. The mission of our church, the vision statement, the place that we're trying to go as a community of believers is bring them in, raise them up, and then send them out. Everything we do, we look at the lens of is it, do, is it bringing new people in? Is it getting the gospel out? Does this build people's faith, increase our maturity? And are we going out to bring more people in? Not because we're trying to make a name for ourselves, not because we're trying to be a huge church in the middle of a cornfield, but because we love people and we believe that we're here to spread the message of Jesus to others to say, you're not excluded, you're welcome in. We actually have been praying that you would show up. We have empty seats set out specifically so that if you will come, we would have a place for you to sit. We actually desire, we actually expect that new people will come in because we're not here just for us. We're here for you. God is for them. I wonder if you would think right now of the people that you do battle with in your life. 
the people that are so frustrating, that make your life miserable, the people that make you think about changing jobs because you just cannot work under them or work with them, the family relationships you're dreading right now that you're going to have to go and see later on these holidays, the people, the relationships that drive you to tears. You realize that those people, that they're not your enemies. That God is for them just as he was for you before you came home into his house. God is for them. Verses 16 through 22 says, Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you, are no long, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. There's a really key verse or a phrase in this set of verses here in verses 19. He says, you are members of God's family. A family relationship takes on a whole new dynamic. I don't know, does anybody here have an adopted family, a spiritual mom, a spiritual dad right now? Have you ever experienced that? Friends that became family got that kind of thing? Darlene, one person, awesome. The rest of you, there's room at the table. Okay, so I remember that a few, uh, that in my late teens, early 20s, I worked at a place in Mississippi, a uh, a uh, school, I think I've told you stories of this before, is a ministry down there. And one of the dorm dads took me in as his spiritual son, Mr. O.B., Mr. O'Brien. Very much so. I don't know why, but he looked like Santa. A lot of my mentors, belly, bald, white beard. I'm not sure what the Lord's telling me, but a lot of them, Santa-looking figures. So Mr. O.B. took me into his house, and a few years later, after I left the ministry, I got married. I brought Amy back to French Camp, Mississippi, because I wanted her to meet them, to meet the family that had a, a huge influence in my life. And so after we had had dinner and connected and stuff, we got into the car to leave, and Mr. O'Brien said, you are family. And we're going to do something called the, O'Brien, the, the OB salute. And so the whole family stands in the driveway. They put their hands straight in the air, and they do this. And they wave until the car is out of sight. And it's the weirdest thing to see, but you know what was going on? I was just ah, sobbing as I was driving away because I felt invited into their family. There's something that happens when you are invited and in that you become part of the family. You are citizens along with God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Family carries a different weight than friend. It carries a different weight to the invitation. 
You know, when I navigate friendships, uh, uh, there's this give and take kind of thing. We, we will host and then you can host or do you like this food or can we go here? What would work for you kind of thing? But with family, I just come in with expectations. I don't really like how messy your kids make my house. So can we come to your house instead? We'll trash your place. There is an expectation that um, a couple days from now on Thanksgiving, the holidays, we will show up. And we will show up with our mess and our loudness, and we will show up for dinner. I never received an actual invitation, but I know where I'm going. Because families don't need invitations. Once your family is an open-door policy, I can't tell you how many times that there's one particular family member that has stopped at my house just because they need to use the restroom. They stay 10 minutes, they use the restroom, and okay, we'll see you later. <laughs> I'm glad you stopped by. Whether we've had differences with our families, there's some families that have gone years, members that have had hurt and don't speak to each other. But how often do you hear the story of a, a, a mother and a daughter, a father and a son, reconciling the relationship years later? How often do you hear of friends or acquaintances that have a falling out and reconciling? It happens, but not nearly as often. There is a weight, there's a stickiness, there's an inclusion when it comes to family because the words that said the things are done, you're still family. By human means, you can't go forever. But Christ himself brought us peace. And he died enabling us to be able to forgive, enabling us to be reconciled, enabling us to love each other past the hurts and the pains. Because when you're family, you're family. Something shifts when you move into this realm. Paul begins to use this language. Instead of the, the godless, the hopeless, the Gentile, he says you're now a citizen, a member of the family. We are part of the same house, joined together in him, and together we create the temple where God's very spirit dwells. Jesus Christ is coming and reconciling people to himself, creating this new thing. I remember when I was 14 years old, my father is from Vietnam, literally kind of off the boat. And he came here, and years later, when I was 14, he took me back to Vietnam with him to meet my family and meet my uh, grandparents for the very first time. And it was a 20-hour flight. It was from Fort Wayne to Chicago, from there to Taiwan, and from there, finally, to Vietnam. And it was plus 20 hours of traveling. I remember on that 20-hour flight, as we're flying across the ocean, that my dad found this other Vietnamese guy on the flight, and he said, Josh, this guy has a Bible. This guy does church like you. And he showed me his Bible, and I pulled out my King James Version, worn edition. There was, you know, travel print. It was like five type font or something. And I brought it out, and he showed me his Bible. He spoke Vietnamese. I spoke English. I couldn't communicate with him. But I felt this connectedness to him because we both worshiped the same God. We both read the same Bible. And me and this guy were part of the same family, even though I never ever saw him again. It's the same reason that Patty, this summer, a woman traveling and moving from east coast to west coast, found herself stopped here for a month and said, hey, I'm going to show up every single week and as long as I'm here because I feel welcome and I feel part of this house. We probably will never see Patty again because she's all the way on the west coast now. 
But for four weeks, she was able to show up because we call the same God Father. We're all part of the same house. It's not us versus them. It's God for them. And because of that, it's us for them too. This is the coffee concentration thing. It's the more there is of us, the more powerful it is. Don't show up with our watered-down faith to approach people with it. Let's bring those people in as offensive as they are. Let's look for the people that are marginalized, the people that are attacking us, the people that are hurt and in pain, the people that are offensive to us, and look for ways to bring them in a part of the family. God is for us. God is for them. And so we are too. Ben, you can start making your way up. I'm going to read a large 12 verses here in a row, and so feel free to just close your eyes and listen. We move into Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 12. He says this, When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming by the way that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles, as I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I've written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the rich inheritance by God's children. Both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promises of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving them by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain this mysterious plan to God that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Chapter 3 is the turning point. It's the reminder to us of why Paul wrote Ephesians. He had that apocalypsis, this revelatory moment in captivity, in prison, as he's sitting there thinking, as the Holy Spirit's enlightening him, he realizes the great mystery that God has been working all these years and has finally been revealed through Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection God is using to bring all creation back to him. We sang a little bit ago about heaven come. Heaven come. And what you're saying is, Lord, push past the boundaries of this sin-scarred life. And may your kingdom come right now. Diverse kingdom that pushes back against ethnicity, against selfish belief, against uh, uh, political ties, against anything we could think. But there is unity in Jesus Christ because we are part of the family of God. Paul is saying that Jesus came for you who is on the outside. And not only has he come, but he's come bearing gifts. He talks about how there's all these rich treasure, this inheritance for every person that's not a part of the family. 
There's things saved up for the people in our lives that are not part of the family. Going back to chapter 1, he says, In him we have access to every blessing of the Spirit. In him we're chosen before the foundations of the world in love. In him you have redemption and forgiveness from sin. In him you have an inheritance. In him you have the seal of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, in him you're positioned with Christ. You're seated with Christ. And the promise and assignment given to Abraham has finally come about. And all of this is God's mysterious plan. Christ's sacrifice has come about so that we can have peace and unity amongst the family of God. God is for you. God is for them. So we are for them too. I just want to back up just a little bit to chapter 3. Verses 10 says, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in such variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you realize that what Paul's saying is that God is using the family of God to flex on the unseen powers of this world? Do you realize that it's our differences that usually creates tension? Skin color, political views, how you approach the world, how you handle your finances, how you manage your family. So many times our diversity is the thing that's used to create disunity in people. Not just in the world, in the church. And God's saying to all the unseen powers that work in people's hearts, I can actually take all that diversity and bring it in a unified place and call it the family of God and show you my glory through it all. That he can take all those differences and smooth them over, all those things that uniquely make us and make it cohesive and beautiful. In just a little bit, we're going to go from here. And many of us are traveling or hosting this year. In just a little bit, many of us will be going and prepping and running around and preparing the house or preparing to leave and going to our holiday feast. As you go, I'd like you to take this mentality with you. That as the holiday season's here, I'd like to you to remember that you are carrying a spirit of unity with you where you walk. Remember that as you interact with people, as you spend time with your in-laws and your patients, runs short. That as you spend your time amongst the friction, the natural friction that happens with all the parties that you have to go to. As you sit across the table with that person that has the differing political views or the differing church views or the different views and is very interested in telling you how to raise your children. All the ways you can be doing better. Remember that it's not you versus them. God is for you. God is for them. And so you are for them too. This, this whole section of scripture that Paul is writing to is both to Jew and to Gentile. And to the one on the outside, he's saying, you are welcomed in. And to the other one that's on the inside, he said, don't hold them out. Let them in. We're going to go into a time of worship, and um, I'd ask you to just 
spend a few minutes. I don't have a specific response today. This is what I'd ask you to do is to let the Lord work in your heart. Maybe you're looking for peace today and you have a lot of anxiety looking at the holidays. Maybe you're feeling busy and worn out already and it's not even Thanksgiving yet, friends. Maybe the season is just painful and maybe you're going through something that doesn't have to relate to anything we're talking about. Well, we have vetted prayer team members here for you. We have people that we have spent money on, time with, trained them to come forward and to pray over and with you. And they'll be here on the left and the right and in the back. And so if you'd like to during this time to either come forward or go to the back to pray, to ask for prayer, I'd invite you to do that. If you'd like to just worship in your seat, I'd invite you to do that. I would ask, though, that you respond in this moment to God with your worship, with your prayer, with your honesty, with vulnerability, and let him speak to you. We can go to worship lighting right now, but church, would you just stand with me, please? I'd love to just pray this simple prayer of you before we go to the altar time. Lord, may we be people who exemplify your love. May our interactions and socialization this season be ones filled with grace. May our language be marked with kindness and love. And may our actions always point towards you, Father, in a good and holy way. May we forgive past hurts and look for any way to include our family and friends into the family of God. In Jesus' mighty name.